Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Mile End server. To hear talks from each of our services, please visit christchurchlondon.org. Thank you, everyone. Um, it's great to be here, and it's great to see everyone again after many of us were away over the summer. Um, as Joel mentioned, my name is Simon. I'm married to Christina in the front row here. Um, in seven days' time, I need another, I need another week for this, um, we're going to be celebrating our 12th wedding anniversary. Um, as many of you know, we have two sons, Jonah, who has just gone into year four at school, and Reuben, who has made the leap up from reception to year one. As a family, we've had the pleasure of being a part of the Mile End community for just over three years after initially joining Christchurch in the late 2000s. When I'm not parenting or preaching, I'm employed as a television documentary editor. Let's pray together before we read uh, the passage. Father God, thank you that you are here. Would you open the eyes of our hearts as we read your word today? Would you give us ears to hear and transform and renew our minds as we contemplate who you are? In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 9 and verses 18 to 27. They're also on the screen here. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Um, over the course of this past year or so, we've been studying Luke's Gospel. We have learned about the supernatural birth of Jesus and the beginnings of his earthly ministry. We have heard his manifesto for life, the Beatitudes. We've studied his parables as he taught the crowds. We've read of him healing all who are sick, casting out demons, calming the storm, and feeding the 5,000. Today, we have reached a point in the narrative of Jesus' life, which would often be described in classical storytelling as the midpoints. 
It's where a new and previously hidden truth about Jesus comes to light as he clearly reveals to his closest followers that from this point forward, his life will be heading towards a completely unthinkable destination. It's a pivotal scene for both the disciples and our understanding of who Jesus is, and one that turned the twelve's expectations of him upside down. The disciples were ordinary people just like us, and they were invited by Jesus to follow him and become students of him. They would have probably lived with Jesus, and their daily lives would have been intertwined with his. They would have accompanied him on his travels and physically walked everywhere he went, never straying far from his side. According to the Babylonian Talmud, a disciple would sometimes even carry a rabbi's baggage and prepare his food to his liking. They were undertaking a full-time apprenticeship to Jesus. They were learning firsthand who he was and what he was like. But there was more than that going on. He was teaching them how to live their lives as, he, as if he were them and inviting them to use their lives in the most useful and impactful way possible. He was giving them a story and a purpose to step into. Stories play a key part in our lives too, as they help us to define who we are and what our own life's purpose is. We live in a world of narratives. The most prevalent stories of our day tell us we are free to be ourselves, that we can choose our own destiny and create our own future. Sometimes as we stand before this world of possibility, we can actually find ourselves surrounded by uncertainty. Particularly as we contemplate life's big questions, such as what should I do with my life? Or what direction should I take? I remember in my late teens and early 20s, almost being paralyzed by these questions, like too afraid to even do something because there was such a risk and a cost involved. With so many choices and options, it can sometimes be challenging to know what to select. So what do we often do in these circumstances? We look to others for guidance. We listen to those who are near to us, such as our family members or those in our circle of friends or church community. But we also give equal weight to those whose lives we follow from a distance in a digital sphere. We all become the students and the disciples and followers of someone. We have found ourselves role models whose lives we wish were our own and whose stories we wish we were living in. Someone, or most likely a handful of people, have become our teachers, showing us how to use our lives and discover meaning and purpose. Sean Carter, better known as Jay-Z, someone knows it, sums this up really nicely himself when he writes this. We were kids without fathers, so we found our fathers on wax, meaning his parents' record collection. We found our fathers on wax and on the streets and in history. And in a way, that was a gift. We got to pick and choose the ancestors 
who would inspire the world we were going to make for ourselves. With the absence of a guiding father in his life, he looked to both historical figures and present figures on the street to teach him how to make it and succeed in life. Like Jay-Z, we have all picked and selected from multiple sources a vision of a good life that most appeals to us. For many of us, the story of a good life that we have subscribed to is one that makes life all about us, with the ultimate goal being the fulfillment of our own wants and desires. Is the pursuit of our own happiness truly the best way to live? Should it be the central purpose and mission of our life, or is there another way to live? In our passage we've just read today, Jesus took his disciples away from the region around the Sea of Galilee, where most of his ministry had taken place. He had intentionally moved them away from the area that was full of the crowds who were eagerly seeking after him in order to lead them into contemplating who he really is. When they are there, he asked two very specific questions to the disciples. The first was, who do the crowds or other people say that I am? The second was, who do you say that I am? Rather than just telling the disciples who he was and what they should believe, he was inviting them to pause, to think, and to consider who he really was. And that invitation from Jesus is extended to us today also. What comes into your mind when you think about the person of Jesus this morning? Who would you say that he is? This is a question for us to continually think about, but we should also considering it, consider asking it to those who are currently on a faith journey. When Adnan spoke on Alpha Sunday earlier this year, he let us know that there is research to suggest that one in three people in the UK are open to having a conversation about faith and finding out more about who Jesus is. One of the top things non-Christians remembered from faith conversations was, there, was that they were asked what they believed. We live in a time when there are many competing stories, views, and theories about who Jesus is. He is often viewed as a wise moral teacher or a prophet who is the founder of one of the great world religions, and that's one of the many competing options available for us to select today. And that's not too dissimilar from what the crowd saw of Jesus in his day. They thought he was one of the great figures from a near or distant past, like John the Baptist, who was recently beheaded, or perhaps Elijah, one of the prophets from old who had come back to life. Generally speaking, people often think too sensationally or too superstitiously about Jesus. They seek either the spectacular or the religious rituals that they can control, rather than seeking to personally know the person and heart of Jesus. In this encounter, we discover not just who Jesus is, but we also find out how he is, who he is. He reveals the defining and central purpose of his life and ministry to us. Peter, who was, Peter, who was so often the spokesperson for the disciples, 
correctly identifies that he is the Messiah. In the ESV translation, Messiah, his reply is written as the Christ of God. And this title, the Christ, has already been used multiple times in Luke's gospel. It was confessed by the angels at Jesus' birth, then by the gospel narrator when Jesus was presented at the temple for purification. It was confessed by demons after Jesus healed the sick. And then here, it is now confessed for the first time by the 12. And when we hear or read the word Christ, we should think king. Jesus, the Christ of God, was Israel's ultimate one. He was God's final king. He was the expected king of the house of David who would rule over God's people forever. In the ancient world, the king was synonymous with a warrior at the head of an army, just like King David or Julius Caesar was. It was not uncommon for kings to resort to using violence to seize political power, expand their empire, and attain whatever their hearts desired. And this is what both Peter and the world he was living in were hoping for. The 12 would have been looking to Jesus to remove the oppressive Roman rulers, overthrow the conquering forces of Israel, and reestablish the physical kingdom to the people of God. As we know, however, this was not the way of Jesus. Against Jewish nationalistic expectations of a potentially violent revolution, he was going to be the suffering Christ. Foretelling his own death and resurrection, he informs the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Instead of shedding the blood of others, Jesus the King would go to the cross to give his blood. When there is distance between ourselves and God or the community of believers, his blood welcomes us back into close relationship. His blood heals us and makes us whole. When we have missed the mark, failing to live up to our own standards, the standards others set for us, or we fail to fully represent the image of God in our lives, Jesus the King steps in. His spotless, stain-free, supreme life is exchanged with ours. We are cleansed, purified, and accepted, and can receive God-given fullness as we embrace our identity as children of God. This is the story we are invited to make our own. Whatever our past or present, we can be transformed by the blood of Jesus and walk into a future of fullness of life with him. Let's have a quick drink. The question of who Jesus is was conclusively answered on the third day. Many great figures of history live on in their words and works, but none of these are alive themselves. Yet Jesus the Christ lives on, not only in his remarkable teaching, but he himself is fully alive. Any explosive contemporary theory 
or so-called stunning revelation that comes to light from the crowds today has to stand against the reality of the resurrection. The empty tomb, the folded gray clothes, and resurrection appearances all stand up against the attempts to scrutinize or discredit the resurrection. The disciples themselves were eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus, and they continued to follow him right up to his death. When faced with their own deaths, all but one of them died as martyrs. Despite a worldview in the first century that was skeptical of resurrection, it would go on to be the cornerstone of Christian confidence from the very birth of the church. And when we read Luke's follow-up book of Acts, we find no fewer than 11 passages that recalled the early church proclaiming that Jesus rose again. We can say with confidence that Jesus is not just the suffering Christ, but he is also the risen king. And because of it, we are presented with a decision to make about who we are going to follow in our lives. In his classic book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote that a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he has a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this, was, either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let none of us come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Lewis, like Jesus, wants us to consider and contemplate the teachings and the acts of the Christ and make a choice about who he is. Desiring that we and the disciples can see the full picture before making our decision about him, Jesus clearly outlines what is at stake when he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. So as we look specifically at this verse, we are presented with two choices. The first one is, we deny Jesus and we follow ourselves. We make ourselves the king and the ruler of our own lives, and we make getting what we want the ultimate authority and driving motivation of our life. We follow the teachers that broadcast their story to us, we subscribe to media that echoes this view, and we surround our friends with sh friends that share this belief. And this is the story of the good life that makes life all about us. Or do we select option two? We deny ourselves and follow Jesus. We turn our back on our own selves to live under the authority and management of Jesus rather than the self. We seek to crucify our often self-centered desires, desiring God himself above every other thing. We choose to live countercultural, Christ-centered lives in an age of self-fulfillment. In this passage, Jesus is actually critiquing the way of living that places self 
places the fulfillment of our own desires in the central position of our lives. He uses the language of profit and loss common with, mer- common with merchants involved in business and trade. He tells us that you can have all the wealth and respect in the world, the prizes found in a so-called great job, an envious career path, a successful business, or thriving social life, but you are really losing your life. You are forfeiting a life lived in close relationship with God. We face a war in our hearts and minds about what story is telling us the best way to live. Is it the way that seeks to only profit in this world or the everlasting way of Jesus? I've personally tried living in such a way that prioritizes success in the world, and I admit it can feel great when you get a glimpse of it. It acts to temporarily mask and cover up the self-doubts and insecurities I tried to hide inside. But I've come to the conclusion that trying to save my life is futile. Success and personal fulfillment, along with the happiness that goes with it, comes and goes. And when I build my life upon something that disappears, I found that it crushes me when I don't have it. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will never leave or forsake us. In our life, we can only have one master, one Lord or King. Either we allow Jesus to take his rightful place as King in our lives, or we continue with our attempts to be King ourselves. As followers of Jesus, we are invited to model our lives on Jesus, to learn to live like him, and to choose his other-centered way of living as the story and purpose of our own lives. We're encouraged to be his disciples and to follow him rather than being formed by the patterns and habits of our wider society. Where does your primary allegiance lie? What is your master? that person or object you look to and trust for your deepest happiness and fulfillment. Author John Mark Comer, commenting on this passage in his book, Live No Lies, suggests that to say yes to Jesus is to say no to living by my own definition of good and evil, to spending my time and money however I want, to the hyper-individualism anti-authoritarianism and full-tilt hedonistic pursuit of our day. It's a thousand tiny deaths that all lead up to one massive life. It's not a futile grasping for control, but the freedom of yielding to love. It's saying yes to Jesus, whatever, whenever, I'm yours. To deny ourselves and take up our cross means that Jesus has become more precious to us than anything life has to offer. Is that something we can say about ourselves? Or are we running after the same things that many of our neighbors do, such as power, pleasure, prestige, and possessions? Are we wholeheartedly, as a body of believers, going after what matters for God? Are we seeking his glory building the church, seeking justice, caring for the poor, 
pursuing righteousness, loving sacrificially, and making use of the gifts he has given us. How amazing would it be if everyone in our church community embraced this vision of a good life? The German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, ahead of, ex- ahead of his execution in prison by the Nazis in 1945, reminds us that the church is a church only when it exists for others. Not dominating, but helping and serving. It must tell men and women of every calling what it means to live for Christ, to exist for others. This is our greatest purpose in life, to exist for others and to follow Jesus' other-centered path, living lives of sacrificial love in partnership with his Holy Spirit. Will you choose this story to be your own? One of the ways we do this is by making a regular and repeated decision to choose the way of Jesus. The instruction we receive from Jesus is that anyone who wishes to be his disciple is to take up their cross daily and follow him. And this follow me invitation is similar to the instruction in the Gospel of John to abide in me. It means to continue in a daily personal relationship with Jesus that is characterized by trust, prayer, obedience, and joy. It's an active instruction that suggests a regular nearness rather than a single time movement towards Jesus. To follow and choose Jesus means we are to daily create time and space in our schedules to be with Jesus. From Monday through to Sunday, we are called to build a regular rhythm into our lives of being with and beholding Jesus. We are to welcome and invite his presence to be with us each day. And this relational rhythm of daily being with Jesus will become the architecture of Christ-like transformation within us. Some of the key practices for being with Jesus are silence and solitude, scripture reading, daily prayer, and Sabbath. How, where, and when we will abide will look different to each one of us, depending on our stage of life. But the key thing is that we ring fence a portion of our time each day to be with Jesus. We are all being formed by someone or something. We are all someone's disciple. To be a follower of Jesus requires setting up counter-formational practices in our life in order for us to be in order for us to be formed into the image of Jesus for the sake of others. We can't accept the invitation to follow Jesus if we are living each day separated from him. We require a daily encounter and experience of his presence to live our lives like he did. Why don't Kenny and the band come up? If you would like to say yes to Jesus' invitation and then to embrace his other-centered story as a story and purpose of your life, we would love to pray with you afterwards. And as we close, let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, thank you that you willingly gave your life to heal each and every one of us and to make us whole. Thank you for the cleansing and purifying power of the cross. Would your abundant love for us fill our hearts today? Thank you for showing us how to make sense of our life on earth, for giving us a story to be part of. Would you transform and renew our minds so that we care less about our own fulfillment and care more for others? Would you empower us to say yes to you and to say no to the desires of ourself? Help us to trust that your invitation for how we should live is truly the best way for us to live. Be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.